it's simply not possible to come up with kind of ready-made uh, kind of solutions for all different types of conflicts that our graduates may be facing and responding in real life. I think there are really two options. You would either try to teach your students, this is what you are supposed to do in scenario X, Y, Z, or teach them how to be curious and how to give them the kind of tools of analysis so that no matter what the situations are, they can actually come up with their own tailor-made responses. Hey, I'm glad you're here with us today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Here we are in the new year, and as always, there was a lot of talk about peace over the holidays. So it's had me wondering about exactly how curiosity might show up in our ways of pursuing and building peace. The academic word for that is praxis how curiosity is actually practiced as distinct from whatever theory or what we might think is knowable about curiosity. I like to harvest curiosity practices, how people use curiosity in their daily lives in ways both large and small, systemic and intimate. This feels important to me because as the essayist Annie Dillard puts it, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives what we do with this hour and that one, is what we are doing. So that gets me thinking about what we are doing or what we might be doing with our hours and days and lives to make this world more livable for ourselves and everyone else, which brings me to big stuff like justice and peace. I've explored curiosity and empathy, anti-racism, conflict resolution, and reaching across any number of divides. They all seem to roll up, ultimately, to a search for peace. So I've invited Alp Ozerdam, Dean of George Mason's Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, to join me for a curiosity conversation, hoping he might help synthesize things. Dina Ozerdam specializes in conflict resolution, peacebuilding, and post-conflict reconstruction. He studied first as an engineer and has over 20 years of field experience around the globe. In 2019, he came to what was then George Mason's School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, ESCAR, to lead a program that strives to have a transformative impact on conflict-affected societies across the world through creative teaching, innovative research, and participatory engagement with non-academic partners. Since his arrival, the school has been renamed in honor of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and their incredible lifelong commitment to peace and justice. I first heard Dean Ozerdam speak at a session convened by Bob Mitchell, who joined me on a previous episode to talk about the launch of his bipartisan leadership program at Mason. More recently, he facilitated a panel on peace engineering and how technology can prevent conflict and spur peace building that I found fascinating, both sobering, but ultimately surprisingly hopeful. And I wish like anything, I hadn't missed the program on anticipatory innovation governance, but you get the idea. His approach to peace building is relational, multidisciplinary, multidimensional, 
and feels very much like the work of a kindred spirit. So welcome, Alb. Hello there, Adeline. Great to be here. Thank you. So tell us about the Carter School. We are the School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. But ultimately, our goal is to link peace with justice. Because we believe that without justice, peace to large extent would be quite meaningless. So you could create an environment of nonviolence in the sense that people are not killed because of political violence, you know, and, uh, but that's the absence of violence. Mm-hmm. But that's not good enough. What we want is a society that is able to deal with its conflicts in a more uh, effective and harmonious way, dealing with different types of violence. This may be structural, this may be cultural, as well as physical violence. Ultimately, you want to kind of create a society that is um, able to build its own peaceful structures and, and, and establish opportunities for peaceful trajectories. Mm. If you define peace in this way, then curiosity is almost like the backbone of the whole thing, because in order to do this, first you need to be curious about how that would look like. Right. So uh, at the Carter School, I mean, it's a history of 40 years. And and I must say, uh, we are the oldest um, uh, school of uh, peace and conflict studies in the nation. And we are the largest one in the world with our cohort of around 400 students of undergrad, uh, master's and PhD. So it's a really unique place in terms of its size and in terms of what it does in the uh, peace and conflict space. And, and, and it's a really exciting place. Let me just add that too. Uh, like in your introduction, you mentioned all the new programs we, we have just put together, like our peace engineering lab, really trying to focus on the nexus of technology and, and peace building and how we can use technology for the purpose of conflict prevention and, and peace building. The thing that really struck me about this program is that you focus on it, not just as about imparting knowledge. It's not just, here's the list of stuff that you need to know, but it's also really about skills building and the experiential learning. And and as you say, I think the pursuit of peace is absolutely kind of on the backbone of curiosity. But those ways of bringing people into the skill sets and into the field also seem very centered around curiosity. Do you think of it that way? Yes, because uh, it's simply not possible to come up with kind of ready-made kind of solutions for all different types of conflicts that our graduates may be facing and responding in real life, right? So if you you kind of, I think there are really two options. You would either uh, try to teach your students like, you know, this is what you are supposed to do in scenario X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. Or teach them how to be curious and and how to give them the kind of tools of analysis so that no matter what the situations are, they can actually come up with their own tailor-made responses, right? So I think in that way, you know, the the latter is much more effective, right? Because in the former, you're not gonna be able to, you know, come up with that kind of like the uh, all possible scenarios kind of responses. If, if, the, if the students have those skills to, to analyze and respond uh, in all different circumstances, I think that that's much more, much more effective. Mm, yeah. Well, you also describe peace not only as a 
context-based phenomenon, but also very much as one that depends on how it's lived, enacted, and embodied in everyday lives, which is what made me think of Annie Dillard's wonderful passage. So what does it mean for peace to be a context-based phenomenon? Or maybe what is peace as praxis? I think what we mean uh, by that is uh, for a very long time, I think the agency of individuals and communities uh, used to be ignored in Mm. the creation of peace. So peace was kind of seen as like the kind of very important people like presidents, um, prime ministers, etc. kind of they sign a peace agreement at the macro level or they, they, they policymakers kind of come up with ideas and you know, implementations. And this is something kind of a job by you know, important people, kind of you know, people uh, who govern us, right? So that was a much agency for communities and individuals. But on the other end, when it comes to everyday peace and everyday peace building, the agency is with individuals and communities. So it's what we do in our daily lives. And, and recognition that you know, the, the local conflicts, unless they are responded effectively, they tend to become much more uh, significant and critical at the macro level. And uh, so the in- importance of individual in any conflict response, I mean, I think that's, that should be the really the starting point because ultimately the conflict doesn't only destroy buildings, infrastructure, but really affects the lives of human beings, right? So how to rebuild lives, it's not just a physical matter. It's not only a political matter, but it's a social, cultural matter. It's a psychological matter, right? So it's a combination of that that really sort of uh, brings us to the point that if you want to talk about peace building in a kind of an effective way, that should be the starting point. You know, whose who's peace we are talking about here? Mm. You know, and, and, and in our societies, you know, we might have communities, but within our communities, we have individuals with all sorts of differences and we have different communities. So we are not all affected in the same way by the same armed conflict or by the same social conflict, right? So the impact that we receive from that particular conflict tends to be quite different in terms of who we are, right? Because of our age, gender, race, ethnicity, religion. So when it comes to then talking about peace building, then we really need to recognize those differences because Again, in that process of peace building, the abilities, capabilities, and, and, and possibilities that those different groups might have in rebuilding their own lives, their communities would be different, right? So I think this whole issue of then, you know, like what the Carter School does or the other centers working in this field is really uh, to play that role of being a facilitator, right? So, you know, in this, day and age, for example, with the changes in technology. Because you know, let's imagine what's gonna happen in 20, 30 years time with technology, artificial intelligence, with the big data, it's gonna be so much part of our lives that we cannot ignore that the things will be different. So when it comes to conflict resolution and peace building, you know, 
the idea that we'll be doing them in the same way that as we do right now, I think is not. <laughs> so we got to get ready with those changes, and that's how I, I really see the value of you know higher education and uh, and the, you know like your earlier question, like you know what we what we try to do with our teaching and research and community engagement, and I think there the, the key issue for us is relevance, how relevant we are for what's happening around us, you know, when it comes to like everyday peace. Yeah. That's what we are trying to address. So uh, some of the great peacemakers, you know, obviously our namesakers, uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter to start with, but, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, uh, Marty Atisari, you know, these are individuals who, you know, done so much for uh, making peace, building peace, right? And there are so many uh, policymakers, organizations like the United Nations, international NGOs, you know, doing lots of work in this space. And I recognize that, and I really, I'm, I'm thankful that they, they do such work. However, unless individuals and communities at the grassroots level really grapple with the challenges of conflict and building peace, none of this you know, micro level, high level initiatives would, be, would become effective and sustainable. Because at the end of the day, you know, in terms of what's happening in the space of peace is on the ground, yeah. you know, in homes, at work, in the street, you know, like uh, us very ordinary people in our lives, right? So this is why it's so critical that we really need to change this understanding that peace is made by somebody important up there. You know, peace is made by us as individuals in our, in our lives, right? And after that, it's much easier to think about peace at the macro level because it's more manageable, achievable. So this is why I think you know, we need to recognize the difference between conflict management and conflict transformation. Because conflict, oh, nice. Talk about that. Because you know, in, in terms of the way we respond, uh, we respond to conflict, I would identify three kind of methods, so to speak. Conflict management, conflict resolution, and conflict transformation. So uh, conflict management is quite realist, kind of sees that conflict is part of you know, human nature, as long as we interact, we will need to, we would have conflicts. So all we can do the best is that we can manage them. So you tend to have third parties intervening, kind of making peace, but there's a kind of a significant power relation here. You know, it's kind of like the important people making peace for others. And they are often white, they are often male, they are often middle-aged, right? I mean, kind of, you <laughs> see this whole kind of conflict management kind of process, whether it's between states or communities. So that is one. The second one is conflict resolution, right? This is more progressive in the sense that we are trying to address root causes of the conflict. We are trying to bring more stakeholders on, you know, to the table, but ultimately we are trying to resolve the conflict. And, you know, I, I may be the Dean of uh, School for Conflict Resolution, but ultimately I often question whether or not conflicts are there to be resolved because solution is, I'm afraid, something that in old days to be sold in pharmacies, right? Kind of like, <laughs> not necessarily that you can always solve 
conflicts. You know, some of them are so intractable. Some conflicts are based on injustices, right? So they are not really kind of like coming to an agreement. You know, their kind of resolution is very much around how you deal with the structural violence, right? So that is kind of better than conflict management in terms of like the, um, where the curiosity kind of fits in that uh, picture and the, the role of individuals and communities, but there are limitations. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Alp Ozerdam, Dean of George Mason University's Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. We're talking about peace building and what he calls our individual agency in everyday peace, and where curiosity fits in the spectrum between conflict management, conflict resolution, and what he looks towards in conflict transformation. And the third area, the the third type of response is conflict transformation. That's about questioning. That's about not just between the parties, but within the parties. So let me give you an example. You may have a community A and B in conflict, right? But we tend to assume that community A and community B are just so homogenous and every individual in those communities are the same in terms of their needs, expectations, and the kind of aspirations. And the reality wouldn't be, I mean, couldn't be any more different than that. The reality is that we have the heterogeneity, we have all sorts of differences, and there are also subgroups within those communities, in fact, fight against each other over resources, uh, over kind of power relations, right? So. Conflict transformation really starts within the groups and then move between the groups, right? It's about individuals, it's about communities. So this is why I think, you know, everyday peace is important because it provides the light on the issues of conflict transformation. It recognizes the agency of individual and communities. And, and it's about relations. It's about, uh, Curiosity in the sense that, you know, when you start the conflict transformation, you don't have the purpose of resolving the conflict. You have the objective of just being curious because you are allowing the parties to come up with their own version of peace here, right? It's a bit risky, right? You know, because you you don't know where you're gonna kind of end up with, but I think it's much more effective and sustainable because is, is the peace belong to people there, not to some important people up there, right? So these are some of the differences I think we can sort of think when we think about, you know, like peace and curiosity. Fascinating. It was something that I came across in digging in a little bit on the session that you did on anticipatory innovative governance about needing to get to the right question in an increasingly complex world. And it seems to me that the importance of question formulation, which is absolutely a curiosity exercise, is also foundational, certainly to the kind of conflict transformation that you've just described. Absolutely, because, you know, uh, we tend to pretend that, uh, you know, whether you are a researcher or a practitioner in the field of uh, peace building, 
if you pretend that you know like the you have the, the full objectivity when you ask certain type of questions then you are just kidding yourself right <laughs> yeah, because you know, let's face it you know we ask certain questions uh, because of certain reasons right and and some of these reasons really are the result of who we are as practitioners mm -hmm. and, and as uh, researchers right and uh, so uh, asking you know, questions, what type of questions uh, are asked would really kind of like lead us to certain type of responses. Right. So um, what we are talking about here really is kind of the narrative of conflict and narrative of peace. So what I'm saying is that uh, you can actually kind of write many different types of narratives about the same conflict phenomenon and the same peace phenomenon, right? So who writes that narrative is the kind of like the holds the power over a kind of facts or the kind of like the what happened, the realities and the and the, the, the trajectories for peace building, right? So it really matters if the questions are asked in an open-minded way and the kind of like the, as you described, like the, uh, with the with the base of curiosity, because curiosity gives us that opportunity, right? You know, just sort of like more lateral thinking rather not just logical thinking. Right. It just allows us kind of like going kind of different stages and saying, well, you know, this may sound logical, but, you know, how about other factors, right? So I think in that way, the kind of the curiosity is a, is a, is a kind of a methodology that really suits to, uh, to the um, DNA of conflict transformation. And, and uh, it's about learning, it's about asking questions. And, and most likely, I think, let me just add one more thing. Who's asking that question? And, and there, what is the role of the community in structuring that question, right? Because the whole participation, because often when we think about participation, the role of communities in peace building, we tend to think about much at the later stage in the implementation. But I would say that, look, you know, that's wrong. You know, at the right beginning, even before we conceptualize what we are planning to do, we need to prepare our questions together with conflict-affected communities, right? Giving them the empowerment, giving them the tools, skills, and, and in kind of like the opportunity for them to raise their voice in shaping those questions, right? So you may describe this as almost like the joined up curiosity journey, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and because that's a kind of a two way about, you know, like between peace builders and the, and the communities affected by conflict. So the, the, the agency really uh, itself, I mean, you know, the, what you are doing then is not about the end result, it's about the process. And the process itself becomes so enabling and empowering that those communities are probably uh, would be healing much faster because of that. Yeah. This is so significant that, you know, it's not just about diagnosing the problem, but also allowing people to know what to do about it. Right. 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 And, and it's about asking questions again. What's interesting to me about this is that I think often in conflict or in the absence of peace, we think of ourselves as not in relationship with those people. And what 
what you describe is an absolute embrace of our relationship with everyone all of the time and the necessity of recognizing that we're in relationship with everyone all of the time and that those relationships are complicated and infused with all sorts of stuff. And unless we stay curious in the relationship, we make decisions based on really faulty information. I agree. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> yes, I mean, you, you summarized it beautifully, uh, Lynn. And, and there, I mean, I think the relationship, you know, it's not just between human beings, but our relationship with the nature. Yeah. Our relationship with animal kingdom. I mean, kind of like the relations that we form, right? And uh, and there, I mean, I think you know the, the curiosity really is kind of a, uh, an integral part. And and to be honest, I'll be very honest with you here. You know, until this invitation uh, from your program, I don't think I gave enough value to curiosity. You know, in in, term, in terms of what I do. Yeah. But, so you know, you open <laughs> up. You kind of like the gates of curiosity uh, for me because you know uh, just kind of uh, getting some ideas together I was thinking honestly you know that's a kind of a very distinctive difference between resolution and transformation you know the level of curiosity and 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 how much you know communities conflict affected communities are allowed to be curious in that process Right? Because it really shapes whether or not your programs are top-down or bottom-up, they are external or internal, and their uh, engagement in the programs, that's called the funding kind of uh, processes. I mean, everything. You know, curiosity is a kind of a, almost a, um, it's a means of measurement almost, right? You know, what we do about peace building. So, so I'd like to wow. thank you for that. Wow, well, I mean, that's, of course, the goal, right? I mean, it's the reason that I have these conversations, because I do think that we don't think about it. You know, I talk to people who are researchers and theoreticians and in the field, and their lives are driven by this idea that curiosity is a backbone to so much of what we do. But in some ways, the more fun conversations are ones like this, where people are like, oh, wow, I never thought about this. How cool is that? So thank you. That's um, that's a real that's a real gift to me. Thank you so much for that. This has been delightful, and I I look forward to hearing how the Carter School continues to pursue curiosity in an explicit way. Now, well, yes, absolutely. After this program, curiosity will be back one of our our teaching and our research. And thank you so much, Lee. Much appreciated. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous episodes at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Dean Alp Ozerdem. Links to the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Peacetime by Tiny Tiny Trio via Blue Dot Sessions. So, as you go into your day, how might you embody everyday peace. It's a lovely and powerful thing to contemplate. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.